Lord, uh, thank you for these people. I pray that you would um, fill us with your spirit to speak to us uh, the words and the uh, encouragement, the support that you want to give us. Um, ask God that you would make yourself more known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, last week we went through verses 1 through 6. Um, today we'll do a little overview or a little review of those verses, but we're going to also take on three new Beatitudes. We'll go through verses 7 through 9. Let's just start in there. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9. That's what I'm reading through. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In last week's message, we dealt with the Beatitudes not being a spiritual goal. That we are not to strive for these to be goals. And we're not to strive to be poor in spirit, right? Because that would just make us sadistic people. And they're not teachings on how to be blessed. Being in mourning doesn't mean that we'll be blessed. And if we make our way to being in mourning so that we will be blessed, then that's just manipulative. And we're trying to manipulate God. And they're not laws to be obeyed. Being meek doesn't mean we are obeying God. They're not instructions to do anything. And they're not a list of how-tos for getting blessed. And it's not like this checkbox where you're saying, like, I got poor in spirit, I got mourning, I got meek, right? Because if we treat it as such, then you just become legalistic. And the Beatitudes are actually an announcement. It's a, it's a proclamation that the kingdom of God is available even to those who are poor, those who are in mourning, those who are meek. And last week we talked about what the kingdom of God is. And to get more details on that, last week's teaching is available on, available on iTunes now, so you can listen to that. But in summary, the kingdom of God is the present, available, direct rule of God offered to humanity in the life of Jesus. And everyone who obeys God and the actions of His will is within His kingdom. And the truth of the Beatitudes is that the blessedness Jesus talks about is in the kingdom, not in the condition For example, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, He didn't mean that they somehow earned their blessing because of their condition. But it was in spite of their condition that they earned the or had the blessing. They didn't earn it. And they have been freely invited into His kingdom of grace. Through trust in Jesus, you and I may enter the kingdom and receive the fruit of Jesus' life, regardless of our past. No matter what our past is. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that the kingdom is open even to those who are considered second-class citizens. In Jesus' day, those included prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans, people who had some physical ailment or some spiritual uh, demon possession. And this was shocking in the day of Jesus. These people never would have thought they were eligible for anything, let alone the kingdom of God. And in our day, it's a little different. We don't think, those things don't shock us anymore. Tax collector, that's not shocking, right? A prostitute, it's not shocking, right? You just hang out here, you see them right here. So, so then you got to think of like, well, 
who, who, who are we going to plug into that spot? A terrorist. A Taliban lieutenant. Right? So you plug those people in, and then you get our gospel, which is a wonderful and marvelous gospel, but a shocking one. You're like, how can it be include a terrorist be included in that? That's what a Samaritan was back then. Not a terrorist, but that's how the shock value was, right? And next week we'll go into this a little bit more and, and some of us will, will hear about these other people that Jesus considers in His kingdom. And along with reviewing the Beatitudes we talked about last week, and it, we're going to explore three new ones today. And I, and I want you to look at how Jesus taught. How He approached learning. Because it is through His use of ordinary stories, His use of parables, that Jesus, our Master Teacher, moved beyond just information, moved beyond just head knowledge, and He constantly appealed for a transformed heart, a transformed mind, a transformed soul, a transformed life. And He tore down the false assumptions of His day, and then He painted a beautiful portrait of what life could be like in the Kingdom of God through reliance and trust in Jesus. The Beatitudes take those who are regarded as the, the most hopeless, the most helpless, those who feel they don't have any chance at all to receive God's blessing, those who feel that God doesn't have an interest in them whatsoever, and it showcases them, it elevates them as people who can enjoy the touch of God and the blessings of God that He has available to them. And there isn't a person out there that God can't bless. He cares for all of us, and He wants to deliver us from anything that is negatively affecting us. And you know that saying, God helps those who help themselves? Thank God that's not true. I mean, some of us just can't help ourselves, right? Some people are too injured. They're too hurt. They're too damaged. They're too lazy to do much at all for themselves. And the great thing is that God is way bigger than any of those conditions. God helps us in spite of our inability or even our lack of desire to help ourselves. That's His love for us. It's extremely great. And every time I read that, I get goosebumps. So let's briefly go over verses 3-9 through and see how we are able to live in response to these Beatitudes. And as we go through these Beatitudes, I want you to envision yourself on the top of that mountain with all those people with their various deplorable conditions. That mountain. That's what scholars think it is. And I also want you to keep in mind that all those who are blessed by Jesus aren't blessed because they earned it, but in spite of it. That in the middle of their deplorable state, the kingdom of heaven or the rule of heaven has moved upon them redemptively through the grace of Jesus. And our blessedness has nothing to do with a quality that we have or a condition that we have. It has everything to do with the relationship that we have. We are greater if we live in the kingdom because a greater power works within us. The power of God is made available to us through Jesus. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, spiritual beggars, deprived and deficient, those with no trace of religion, those who don't have any background whatsoever with religion, do not feel any closeness to God whatsoever. They think that he, has, he doesn't want anything to do with them. People like this are blessed because they have access to the kingdom available to them, even in such a broken condition. For those of you who feel you have nothing to offer spiritually, 
people who have no spiritual talents or no spiritual credentials, feel no spiritual significance. God has made a provision for you to enter the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is available to you even if you're spiritually broke and have nothing to offer Him. He opens the kingdom to you. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the weeping ones, people who are in a deep emotional pain because of what has happened to them. For example, a person who has lost a loved one, and and they're just in, in this intense state of pain, depression, grief, and they just cry uncontrollably. Someone who has been deserted by their spouse, leaving them in a state of rejection, confused. People nearing retirement who have lost their life savings because of a poor economic downturn, and they don't know what to do next. But as those who mourn, they see the kingdom in Jesus, and they learn from Jesus how to live in it, and they find comfort. And their mourning turns into dancing. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the intimidated, the passive, those who are pushed around, the shy ones, those who are panic-stricken, the mild, the weak, the demoralized, the unassertive, those taken advantage of, those lacking in self-confidence. They are those who feel that if something goes wrong around them, that they had something to do with that problem. They don't feel they can do anything right. They get easily convinced to do something that they have a conviction to do because they don't have any confidence to stand on their own decisions. They have a difficulty standing up for themselves. But as the kingdom of heaven is made available to them, they will inherit the earth. The Lord is their shepherd. They shall not want. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who burn with a desire for things to be made right in themselves and in others. For those who haven't received justice, who haven't been treated fairly, who have been treated with partiality, with prejudice, those who have been cheated, they will be filled. Maybe you're the person who wants so badly to be pure, but you fail. You don't understand why you keep failing and you're so frustrated with yourself. Perhaps you or someone you know hasn't received justice, like so many families right here in Oakland who have lost a loved one. How do a loved one murdered right here in Oakland? Murder unsolved. Justice not done. The kingdom of heaven makes available to you a satisfaction with the end result. You will be filled. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are taken advantage of, for they will receive mercy. The world is skeptical about showing mercy because they're afraid of being taken advantage of. My mom, who doesn't have a whole lot of money, has let people borrow money from her, knowing full well that they're not going to pay her back. She had mercy on them. Her generosity and her kindness were taken advantage of by people who have no means to pay her back. But she feels compelled to help them in their need. And a bizarre thing is that some people feel that this is the way to take care of things. That you have to hustle and get business taken care of at any cost, even if that means taking advantage of someone. And some would say she's foolish to be taken advantage of. The Bible says she will receive mercy. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those for whom nothing is good enough, not even themselves, for they will see God. 
This is the perfectionist. People who actually desire what is best in their opinion, but it causes them harm because they can't stand themselves. They're a pain to be around. Their attitude for perfection causes them to be critical of people. And their intentions may be pure, they may be good, but there are people who end up finding ways and things wrong with you as well as themselves. They point out how you're wrong in what you do, what you stand for, what your values are, how you live your life, that your doctrine is incorrect, how you interpret Scripture is wrong. They think that worship should be done a different way. They question your motives. They question your heart. They think your life should be lived out better. But they also find things wrong with themselves. People who really do mean well for themselves, but they're detrimental to themselves because they're so hard on themselves. They pick on themselves, questioning their every motive. They criticize how they look, that they're not skinny enough, that they're not pretty enough. They criticize what they do, that they can't dress right, that they can't cook right, they can't fit in. They're miserable people. But the kingdom of God is wide open for ones such as these. God's touch is available to them, and they will be able to see God, who is perfection the only one to satisfy them because He alone is perfect. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the ones in the middle where neither side trusts you, for they will be called children of God. Now as a pastor, I'm caught in this one all the time. In counseling sessions between spouses that aren't getting along, you know, pastors tend to be the, the middle guy in these arguments. And a pastor isn't trusted because as a pastor, you really can't take a side. you got to hear them both out. And you're just praying for discernment that the Lord would give to you. And if there's the slightest hint of a disagreement with some people, they, they call you names. And it's not sons of God. <laughs> Son of something else. But God says that we will be called His children. Because under the kingdom of God, God gives credit to those who try to work things out among the family. Remember, this is for disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. We have to have a semblance of family where we can bring people of opposing sides together to work things out. And to understand the Beatitudes further, we need to look at the way Jesus taught using what was happening around Him. How He used animate objects and specific ideas and examples from everyday life. Jesus' way of teaching included reversing the accepted assumptions of the time by taking a a well-accepted thought, a well-accepted principle, and going deeper with that thought. He knows that there are deeper truths than what is on the surface of an assumption. And so he goes deeper by showing us what is on his mind and what is on his heart by what he shares and and how he lives. So let's take a, a, a look at several of these examples. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, Jesus' family comes looking to speak to him. Let's read this really quickly. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciple and said, Here are my mothers, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
See, the general assumption of the time was that family relationships were limited to blood relatives. But Jesus corrects this assumption and says that in the kingdom of the heavens, family includes those who do the will of God. Now, what I find to be really cool is that with this acceptance of Jesus, anyone who does the will of God is considered family. All those beatitudes we went over in those various deplorable states and conditions, Jesus confirms right here after the Sermon on the Mount that all of them are considered family and accepted into the kingdom of God. That's awesome. If you ever have any problem in terms of acceptance, do the will of God. You're in His family. A second story is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. We don't have the time to read all those verses, so I'll summarize the story for you. It's a, it's a, it's a story where a rich young ruler asked a question looking for, for Jesus' blessing. And the rich young ruler's assumption was that being rich meant you had God's blessing. And this story is interesting in that you can make references to several of the Beatitudes from this story. It's applicable to the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are pure in heart. And when the rich young man was confronted with the choices of whether to serve God or, or continue with his business, he chooses his business, but he chooses it reluctantly. It was a really difficult decision for him. And you can see it as you read that story. And he was found to love his riches more than he loved God. And Jesus corrects the assumption that the rich are blessed. And he tells his disciples that the rich need God's help to enter into the kingdom of God. And that it can, that it can be particularly difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. Well, you know what? This shocked his disciples. Because they believed that assumption. They believe that if you are rich, you are blessed by God. And the assumption that riches meant God's favor was really prevalent amongst that culture, amongst those people, as it is with some people here today. Those in the name it, claim it movement, those in that prosperity movement, prosperity gospel, they believe the same thing. And this shocked them so much that in verse 26 of chapter 10, of chapter 10 they asked, who then can be saved? They're perplexed. Jesus turns the thing totally upside down on them. Their assumption was that if a rich guy isn't blessed, and supposedly he, he's supposed to be blessed as evidenced by his wealth, and he can't get into heaven, there's no way that I'm going to. And I'd like to point out that Jesus didn't say that the rich can't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus shows that being rich doesn't mean that you're in God's favor. He said that they can enter into the kingdom of God with His help. Which is the only way any of us can enter the kingdom of God, right? Even the poor. And being poor doesn't give someone an advantage, but it also means that being poor doesn't mean you're out of God's favor. Which many people believed then also. That, oh, you're poor. You must have done something wrong. You must be in sin. So Jesus totally flips what people assume is God's blessing, which in this story is being rich. And He totally challenged the assumption by raising the question, how can God favor a person who loves his wealth more than he loves God? The story in Luke chapter 12, verses 13-21 through 21 is similar in that it's addressing an assumption regarding wealth. Jesus tells a parable of the bigger barns after a question from a man who wants his brother to divide an inheritance with him. And the general assumption is that a lot of instant money is worth having. 
And Jesus corrects this assumption and shares that a person can have all the wealth that they desire, yet have nothing. Let's move to another story. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Another, another story we don't have time to read. But, but it's interesting in that it connects with several of the Beatitudes. It connects to the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the peacemaker. And you can probably even connect it to several others. And it tells us of a story of a law expert who's asking a really nitpicky question towards Jesus and his doctrine. And the lawyer's assumption is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But there are some that don't deserve it, right? Then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. The term Good Samaritan is never used in the story because that would have just closed the minds off of those people that were, who were listening to that story. But Jesus was really clever in how he presented that story by, by springing the, the Samaritan piece at the very end of that parable. See, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They believed that the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. And Jesus was telling this law expert that under God's rule, nothing can substitute for loving people. And Jesus was really skilled at challenging generalizations. And in our day, instead of using the good Samaritan, like I said before, he would have used the good terrorist, the good Taliban lieutenant. And I think most of you know the story, but in case you, in case you don't, the story is about a, a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho where, where he's beaten really badly and he's robbed of everything. He's left on the side of the road with nothing, severely injured. And a priest walks by. A pastor does nothing. A Levite walks by. A church leader does nothing. They don't view this guy, uh, this wounded guy, this guy that needs their help desperately as a neighbor, and they felt no responsibility to him whatsoever, even though he desperately needed their help. And as these guys, being really religious guys, were, were probably hurrying to do a religious thing, they didn't want to be bothered. They didn't want to take the time. They didn't want to use their resources, whether financial or, or their energy. or They didn't want to be inconvenienced to help this guy. And here are these guys who aren't poor in spirit, but rather rich in spirit, as they were so-called filled with spiritual things, religious things. Then comes along the Samaritan, despised, disrespected by the Jews, but Jesus is pointing to this guy's heart. Looking at the wounded guy, he's, he's filled with pity. And he rushes to the aid of this guy on the road. He administers first aid to him. He transfers him to an inn. And he takes care of this guy. He even pays for someone to take care of him when he can't. And, and here, as in most cases, Jesus is looking at the heart. Turning our assumptions upside down and challenging us to love others as we would want to be loved ourselves defining for us who a neighbor is by our love. And we make a neighbor when we care for them. Being a neighbor is our responsibility. We don't approach identifying a neighbor by asking, who's my neighbor? But the question we are to ask ourselves is, who will I be a neighbor to? We don't define who our neighbor is so much as we ourselves are a neighbor. And at any given time, we don't really know who our neighbor is. It's really the condition of our heart that determines who turns out to be our neighbor. It's a matter of the heart. And Jesus is not just teaching to help people in need. 
He is teaching us that we can't judge who's in the know with God or who has God or who's blessed just by looking on the outside. It's about the heart. And if we draw any type of dividing line, whether it's a social line, an economic line, a cultural line, a race line, a gender line, any type of dividing line, Jesus will cross it. Just like He did with the Good Samaritan. Jesus applauds the heart of the Good Samaritan while criticizing both the priest and the Levite. Two people who should have acted better because they knew better. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Lastly, in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we'll read this one since it's only a few verses. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, some of you like this, huh? Nor rich neighbors, lest you also invite, they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now this one connects all the Beatitudes to this story. Jesus attends a fancy dinner full of influential people. The accepted assumption is to be hospitable to the people who can help you, to invite people over to dinner who can benefit you or return a favor. And Jesus corrects their assumption and instructs to include those who can't reciprocate anything. He tells us not to be exclusive in keeping our company with only the people who have something to offer us. And Jesus wants us to examine our hearts. And He uses this particular situation to teach that we can't neglect those who are in need. We can't neglect those who have nothing to give back to us and just pay attention to those who are able to benefit us in some way. And Jesus is totally flipping it around, flipping around our thoughts and challenging us to provide for those outside of our comfort zones, to be more kingdom-minded in how we interact with people, to examine our heart and our mind about whom we keep company with, and to challenge us if we are just in relationships that, that can only benefit us. Do we have generalizations? Do we have assumptions that Jesus would challenge us today? That's something for us to think about. Are there assumptions we have that Jesus wants to go further with, to go deeper with? So suppose you want to teach someone to be or do something. For example, to help others in need. How did Jesus go about doing that? Well, Jesus tied His teachings to ordinary life. Ordinary life events that occurred in the student's life by using parables, occasions, specific cases. So he used an occasion to define family when his own family was asking for him. He addressed the specific case of the rich young ruler and the guy that wanted to divide his inheritance. He used a parable with the good Samaritan that was shocking. And he used a dinner occasion to address the people's hearts at a dinner. He aimed his sayings at hearts and habits as they appeared in daily life, rooted in ordinary life. And it's quite different from how we teach and learn today. And because it's so different, it makes it hard for us to completely understand what Jesus is teaching. And what Jesus says can't be understood unless we understand how He teaches. Jesus' goal wasn't to simply pass on information. The goal was to make a significant change in the lives of those who heard His message. And of course, this requires information to be shared. 
But the way that we do it nowadays has very little effect. It has very little life change effect. Hardly any at all taking effect in the churches today. Take an ethics class, for example. The person who gets A's on the midterm, the final, the papers, and knows all the answers when a professor asks a question isn't necessarily the most ethical person. Teaching and learning from that teaching is all about being able to memorize things, right? And putting the so-called right answers on paper or being able to recite them. But it doesn't mean that that person believes in what they are saying or what they're putting on paper. A teacher's job nowadays is just to pass on information to a student, to get it inside their head so that they can recite it or duplicate it on a piece of paper. And the teacher then tests the student to see if they got it by giving them this test or having them write a paper and reproduce this information that they're just kind of like chugging out. But it has no effect in how they live. It's solely in a response. And this is how we approach learning nowadays. We'll go to some Christian seminar with our papers and pens and our laptop and we'll take notes. Not that notes taking is taking bad if it equates to a life change, but if it's just for information, I don't know. Then at that same conference, we'll go to a part of the conference center where they sell a ton of books and selling CDs and DVDs and all this stuff, and, and then we'll buy more stuff to fill our brains. And nowadays, we value information more than we value transformation. And of course, information is needed for transformation, but oftentimes we're looking to know more in our heads rather than what we've already learned to change our lives. Jesus' teaching impacted those who heard because of how He taught and because of how the information was received. He changed lives with His teaching. He didn't place value on mere information. They didn't have notes back then. And people automatically remember what makes a real difference in their life. So whatever doesn't impact your life, you just won't get it. Right? And so it makes no significant change. For example, 9-11. How many of you can recall exactly who you were with, what you were doing, and where you were on that day? Can you see hands? I think it's like almost everyone. I remember when I first heard the news. I was getting ready to go to work that morning when I received a call from someone in Human Resources. And he told me not to come into work because of what happened in New York. And that, and that we were not to go into the office in case they were aiming for San Francisco. And I remember the shirt and the tie that I was wearing when I received that call. I remember the exact spot I was sitting in my room when I answered that telephone. I remember the wall that I was facing. I remember most of the people from the church who came to my place to pray that afternoon. I never wrote any of those details down. I haven't even thought about those details since it happened, yet I remember so many of them. Millions of people can do the same. You see how the Gospels were written? You see how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can remember so much to produce the Gospels? Yet it was, it was God-inspired, don't get me wrong, but I'm sure a lot of it came from how they were impacted by Jesus' teaching. What made Jesus such a great teacher is that as He spoke, as He fostered experiences that made an impact on students' lives, He was able to tie teachings to events. Like what happened right before the Sermon on the Mount. 
Do you guys remember what happened right before the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 4, verses 23? Or verse 23 in Matthew? How He healed all those people? How His fame went across even to Syria? How His fame went across everywhere, even the Decapolis? Hicktown Galilee got attention from the Decapolis. It's like Modesto getting attention from New York City, right? So, so there was no way that they were going to forget the Beatitudes. He taught them in chapter 5 after the end of chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus aimed His teachings at their hearts, their thoughts, their habits, how they daily lived an ordinary life. And He does this for us today. He takes our assumptions, He corrects them. And as this happens, we don't have to try to get Christianity or try to get Jesus. It just happens. It, it just sticks. When the Holy Spirit and Jesus are ministering to you, whether through the Bible or through a person or through a circumstance, there are life-changing events that happen in your life that you remember and you learn those lessons and you know them down pat. And whether we agree with what we're confronted with or not, we have to deal with it. I know this to be true because I've talked to many of you about what God is doing in your life, and it's this very thing. Challenges that, challenges that God has presented before you that brings the Scripture to life before you because you're dealing with it in real time in your ordinary, everyday life. And your assumptions are challenged. And He's bringing up things in your life to bring up because He wants you at a more intimate place with Him. He's training you to reign with Him. You are in training for reigning with God. And as, as some of us who are teachers, we should teach similarly by showing people the presence of the kingdom of God in their everyday, ordinary life. You know, Jesus, they call this the Sermon on the Mount, but He really didn't stand behind a pulpit. He didn't go around having every Sunday that He delivered a message. It was His life. He saw everything around Him happening and He, he used those occasions to teach a truth. It wasn't weekly. It was every second that Jesus was doing this with people. And how through our daily life, God has made the kingdom of God available to us so we can do this. We can make these truths available to people around us in our surroundings every second. And through that, we can impact people's lives because hopefully it's not just head knowledge. Hopefully it's not just... Things, more information like, oh, Bible things. Well, I memorize them, but it doesn't change my life. Big deal. It has to be something to change our life. It has to be something to encourage a life change. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Bible. Thank You for Your Scriptures, Your Word. I love them. But I know, Lord, that that as solely just information does no good. If we just study it as a scholar or, or even as um, an agnostic or an atheist that is just studying it as a piece of literature, it does no good. And not that your word can't change someone, but, it, but that's what it's meant for. It's meant for life change. And God, we ask that as we study, as we pray, and as we live our life, that You would bring things into our minds that are more of a reality that affect everyday, ordinary life in our sphere of influences, that we can exercise our effective will, our kingdom, within Yours. In Jesus' name, Amen.